0: How is your walk with Christ? You've probably been asked that question before. Matter of fact, many Christians throughout the modern church wonder, what in the world does it mean to walk with Christ? Does it mean for some to possess such knowledge of spiritual things that really go beyond the basics? Does it mean to walk with Christ to possess such spiritual experiences that really go beyond the ordinary to the extraordinary Or still, does it mean to possess such positive feelings in a world of negativity? Or does it mean to possess Christ at conversion and then to go on to something more? You see, this question was at the center of Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. What does it mean to walk with Christ? What does it look like? There were false teachers at this time confronting the church with what they thought it meant to walk with Christ. But the Colossian believers had already heard from their pastor, Epaphras, what it really meant to walk with Christ. And and Paul here in this letter works hard for the church to remind them of the supremacy of Christ and what it really means to walk with him. Epaphras and Paul's answer is that to walk with Christ is to walk in Christ. The Christian's walk with Christ is not a walk to attain Christ nor is it a walk to merely imitate the Christ outside of them. The Christians walk with Christ as a walk in union with Christ. It's a legal union in which they have been accepted as righteous by trusting in him. It's also a relational union in which the spirit of Christ indwells them. This legal and relational union means that the Collagen believers were in Christ and Christ was in them. To walk with Christ, then, is to live as one in union with him. And to live as one in union with Christ is to commune with him. Listen to this quote by J.C. Ryle. He says, Union is the common privilege of all who feel their sins and truly repent and come to Christ by faith and are accepted, forgiven, and justified in him. Too many believers, he says, and may be feared, never get beyond this stage. He goes on, communion with Christ is the privilege of those who are continually striving to grow in grace and faith and knowledge and conformity to the mind of Christ in all things. Who forget what is behind and do not consider themselves yet to have taken hold of it, but press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. There Ryle quotes Philippians 3, 13 through 14. He concludes this way, union is the bud, but communion is the flower. Union is the baby, but communion is the strong man. You see, our text this afternoon describes what it means to walk in Christ, what it means to commune with Christ. The message this afternoon is walk in Christ, trusting in him, learning the faith with thanksgiving. First, walk in Christ, trusting in him. Look at verse six and to the beginning of verse seven. Paul says there, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. We have to ask, how did the Colossian believers receive Christ? They received Christ by faith. Look at Colossians 1, verses 3 through 4. Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. So it's with thanksgiving that Paul... Gives thanks for their faith that Paul prayed for their walk in chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. It was with thanksgiving for their faith that Paul declared their maturity in chapter 1. uh, Sorry. It's with thanksgiving for their faith that he declared to them the supremacy of Christ. Reminding them of his ministry. And that's from chapter 1, verse 15, all the way until chapter 2, verse 5. And now in verse 6, he exhorts them to continue in the faith, to continue trusting in Christ. Paul is saying to the Colossian believers, just as you initially received Christ, so continue to live receiving Christ. Live trusting in Christ. Live resting in Christ. Now there's some debate here. Is Paul referring to the receiving of tradition or the receiving of Christ himself. It's important to note that this is the only occurrence of the word receiving with the present object in the New Testament. The present object being, notice there, Christ, Jesus, the Lord. Another thing to note is the immediate context. What has Paul been doing up until this point in the letter? He's been showing forth the supremacy of Christ. And this involves what? Doctrine, but the emphasis seems to be on the scope or the target of that doctrine. Paul seems to emphasize Christ himself. Now, this receiving of Christ is not merely intellectual assent, nor is it a mere conviction that this is true. Though it involves both knowledge and conviction, to trust in Christ is a confession. It is a confession that Christ is the object of your commitment. Again, this includes receiving the apostles' teaching, and we will get there in a moment when we get to learning the faith. But it's a confession that shows forth in all of life. a matter of fact, Paul is saying here, it is a confession of the second person of the Trinity as Christ, Jesus the Lord. First notice Christ. If, a Christ is to, if we are to walk in Christ, to continue living, trusting in Christ, then we are to trust in him as Christ, Jesus, the Lord. To trust in him as Christ means to receive him as the anointed one. Christ is the New Testament equivalent for the Old Testament name Messiah, which means anointed one. And this signified one anointed by the Holy Spirit to an office. And we know from the testimony of Holy Scripture that Christ was anointed to the office of Mediator. He was the one anointed to be the all sufficient prophet who reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. Our all sufficient priest, our Baptist catechism says, who once for up offered himself to sacrifice, to satisfy divine justice, and to reconcile us to God, and continually makes intercession for us. But not only is our all sufficient prophet and priest, but he's our all sufficient king. Our Baptist catechism says, who subdued us to himself, who rules and defends us and restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. So to continue to trust in the second person of the Trinity is to continue resting in him as the anointed one. We don't need another mediator. We have Christ. If we have trusted in him, this is personal. He is our mediator and through him, we are reconciled to God. God is no longer angry with us, but is forever pleased with us in Christ. And this is why to trust in him as Christ, to trust in him as the anointed one, also means to trust in him as Jesus, the saving one. The name Jesus here literally means to save. We see this exactly in what the angel of the Lord said to Mary in Matthew 121. There the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To walk in Christ means to believe that Christ alone is Jesus, the only savior of sinners. And this confession then is a denial that there's any other who can save you. To walk in Jesus then means to look away from ourselves and to look only to Jesus for our salvation. To trust in him as Jesus means to acknowledge God is holy, that God is absolutely righteous and pure, and that you are not. But it's to know and be convinced and rest in the reality that Jesus Christ is holy, that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy divine justice, be that real sacrifice, and pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute. It is to trust that Jesus has purchased you, No longer is the sinner who trusts in him a slave to sin or owned and belonging to Satan. And this is why to trust in him as Christ, the anointed one, and to trust in him as Jesus, the saving one, is to trust in him as Lord, the sovereign one. So many want Christ as Savior, let alone they don't even know what that means. Far fewer desire Christ as Lord. But to trust in him as Lord means to trust in him as the sovereign one, You see, Lord was a title which expressed the exalted character of Christ, his supreme spiritual authority. Paul has already put forth the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of Jesus earlier in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. But here in these verses, he is exhorting the collage believers from that glorious reality. He wants them to continue to live trusting in Christ as the Lord. He wants them to forget the false teachers. And remember, Christ alone rules. And to trust in him as Lord means to believe that he is who he is. Christ is sovereign in creation. He is sovereign in providence. He is sovereign in redemption, sovereign in the world, and sovereign in the church. But to trust in him as Lord also means to submit to him. Christ is Lord of the church. And remember, faith is not only intellectual sin. Faith is a hearty commitment. And this hearty commitment is expressed in obedience. This is why Paul, when he prays for the church to walk pleasing Christ, prays that they would bear fruit in every good work. So to continue to trust in Christ is really a radical confession. It is radical because it affects the way we think, our mind, the way we Feel our affections and our will. It's the mind believing his word. It's the affections desiring his glory. It's the will obeying his commandments. Spurgeon warns here, do not turn away from him. Do not dream of going beyond him. You received him at very first simply. You trust in him entirely. So go on doing so. You were satisfied with Christ when you first came to him, so be satisfied with him still. For you do not need anything more than Christ. There is nothing more than Christ. Now, Paul goes on here to use a few metaphors and participles to further emphasize and illustrate what it means for the Christ, for us to walk in Christ, trusting in him. The first metaphor is rooted Out of all the other three participles in this text, this one is in the perfect tense, which means this is a settled state. Paul wants them to live from this reality as they continue to trust in Christ. He wants them to live knowing that they have been rooted in Christ Jesus, the Lord. One commentator wrote concerning the Colossian believers here, he said, they are to conduct their lives according to this beginning. They are to continue trusting in him, knowing they are rooted in him. You see, our walk in Christ is not trusting a Christ that we are, again, trying to attain. It is trusting in our union with Christ. This is why Paul emphasizes back in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And throughout the rest of this letter, he repeats, in him. So what is the consequence of that? You have been rooted in Christ, and this is real. And if you are trusting in Christ alone, you are then rooted in Christ alone. The Christian life is to be lived from our union with Christ. You are rooted and built up in him. The second metaphor is built up. It's to be taken together with the word rooted. And again, this is a participle. Paul's using it to explain what it means to walk in Christ, trusting in him. The imagery of being rooted and growing and being built up are in Paul's parallel letter to the Ephesians. There, the imagery is similar. Listen to how Ephesians 2, 19 through 21 describes how both Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Paul says there, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. We also see this, these two uh, pieces of imagery rooted and grounded in Ephesians three seventeen. It says there, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So we take that and we come back to Colossians. Paul uses these metaphors to emphasize the fact that as the Christian continues to trust in Christ, they have been rooted in Christ and they are being built up in Christ. They are being then transformed. It's important to note that both metaphors are in the passive mood here. This means the subject is the recipient of the action. Who's the subject? The Colossian believers. So what does this mean? This means our trusting in Christ is because of the sovereign action of God. God is building up the Colossian believers in Christ. This doesn't mean that Christ, the Christ walking in him is, is passive. The exhortation, so walk, implies the very opposite of that. But what Paul is getting at here, using these metaphors, applying these participles, is the spiritual reality that as we walk in Christ, we walk as those who are rooted in him. This is our settled state. And because of this settled state, as we walk in Christ, we walk as one's being built up in him. This is what is really happening by the work of the Holy Spirit. God builds us up. He gives the grace, and since we are in Christ, we can continue being built up in him, in him who is the building, Christ. It's being, we are in Christ, rooted and built up in him, that we can continue trusting in him. The question for us this afternoon, the question we have to reflect upon is, are we trusting in Christ? Are we communing with Christ? If we're trusting in Christ this afternoon, We need to continue trusting in him. It's not trusting in him once or twice. It's remembering each day that by the sovereign work of God, you are rooted and being built up in Christ. So walk in him just as you first received him. Commune with Christ by continuing to trust in him. Because from beginning to end, the Christian life is just that, a life trusting in Christ. This is why Paul goes on, because real faith in Christ, if it is present, it will be established. Remember, faith is a confession. And this confession is comprised of the subjective commitment to Christ, our resting upon him, our receiving him. And it's also composed of the objective word of Christ. Look at the words of Paul as he continues in verse 7. He writes, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Simply put, this means understanding and living out the truth. Not only are we to walk in Christ, trusting in him, we are to walk in Christ, learning the faith. We've looked at the metaphors. Now notice the third participle. Paul writes, established in the faith. That is, if one is to walk in Christ, learning the faith, they are called to be established in it. Their foundation must be right. Their foundation must be sound doctrine. Here, Paul points out the matter of our learning, the material, and the matter is the faith. He has already used this phrase earlier in chapter 1, verse 23, if you look there, when he wrote that they must do this, that what they must do, since they had been reconciled to Christ alone, he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not Sorry, here. Verse 23, continuing the faith statement, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. So you see the faith there, as has been explained, most often refers to the doctrine or the apostles' teaching. This This is the matter or the material of the Christian's learning. And Paul wants them, he wants the Colossians to be established in it. If you also notice back in verse 23, he wants them to remain stable and steadfast in it. In Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, he describes the great impact of this. Listen to this text. It's often repeated, but it's so very important. If we are not stable and steadfast, verse 4, in Ephesians 4, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, This is why we must be stable and steadfast. This is why we must walk in him, learning the faith. You see, Paul wants the church to be immovable, but being established in the faith doesn't mean we don't move in light of it. The faith is to be that wood that fans a flame in our hearts for Christ. You see, Paul is not interested in merely well-versed, confessional, say the right kind of answer Christians. He wants them to understand the truth, and he wants them to live it out. He wants them to comprehend it and to put it into practice. Now, some might say, well, that's the issue with Reformed churches. All about the doctrine, but where's the gospel? Where's, where's Christ? My friends, we see it here. The focus of the doctrine is the gospel, and the gospel is summed up in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul so writes in chapter 1, verse 23, they're describing the faith, he says, the hope of the gospel. He says this to remind the Colossians that at the heart of the faith is the gospel concerning Christ. You see, if to walk in Christ means trusting in him, or well, we need to know who he is. You need to know what he has done. You need to know what he has given. As Christ himself said in Matthew 28, he says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. So everything in the scripture is important because everything in scripture relates to Christ. And everything in the scriptures is important because we need to be instructed. Now, some might ask, how do you learn it? I I go to the Bible. I don't know where to start, how to study, read, or even apply it. Well, notice not only does Paul give the Colossians the matter, the material. He also reminds them of the means of our learning. Paul writes in verse 7, just as you were taught. The church in Colossae was taught. Think about it. At this time, they didn't have personal Bibles. They went home with, they didn't have Ligonier Ministries. They didn't have the amount of good Christian books that we have today, but I'll tell you what they did have. Look back at chapter 1, verse 7. Tells him there, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. The Colossian church had a gift from the ascended Christ. Yes, he was a weak man. He was an imperfect man. He was a sinner saved by grace and being sanctified. But he was a gift to the church. They were given a servant who worked hard in teaching and exhorting and praying for them. This would be the primary means then of their learning, and they're putting that learning into practice. The ordinary means of our learning is the faithful proclamation of the scriptures. And the scope of that proclamation is Christ Jesus the Lord. This is who we learn about with every sermon, every lesson in Christian education. Private learning then must be had by the Christian, but this private study, it must be informed and directed by our pastor's public ministry of the word. But neither Epaphras nor your pastor teach and preach only to your mind. But through the mind, they are seeking to address your desires, to to summon your wills. They give the sense, but then there's the summons. You see, learning the faith again is not merely intellectual. Learning the faith involves our whole life. This is what we begin to see in the metaphor walk. It refers to the leading of one's life. Paul's saying here, I'm writing this so that for the rest of your life, you will continue trusting in Christ and learning the faith just as you were taught. Paul's reminding them, I I taught Christ is supreme. I taught you Christ is sufficient. Epaphras did the same. Now live. Live recalling. Live delighting. Live Learning, taking in all that you are learning and putting it into practice because this is what it means to walk in Christ. Are you learning the faith? Is the faith fanning aflame your heart for Christ? My brothers and sisters, I urge you this afternoon to genuinely learn the faith and remember at every point, even when it is difficult and tedious to listen, Remember that it's all in reference to your relationship to Jesus Christ. To walk in Christ is to commune with Christ. And this means, as we have seen, continuing to trust in him, learning the faith. But this walk is not complete without thanksgiving. Which is why in the last part of verse 7, Paul concludes by saying, abounding with thanksgiving. Now, there are three brief implications I want to draw out here. First is that abounding in thanksgiving means to give thanks to God. The Christian life is not a thankful life just to be thankful. The Christian life is a life of thanksgiving to God. Look again at Colossians 1, verse 3. Paul writes there, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. You see, a Christian is not thankful just to be thankful. A Christian is thankful to God, and they're thankful to God because God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul acknowledges that it was the love and wisdom of God to send his Son into the world to save us from our sins. The fact is, beloved, Abounding in thanksgiving means to constantly remember the gospel. The gospel we so often forget. Remember what God has done through Christ to save you. Remember that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has shown his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To abound in thanksgiving then is to remember that where sin abounded, grace has abounded all the more. So to abound in thanksgiving means to give thanks to God. Second, is that abounding in thanksgiving means to give thanks to God through Christ. Turn to Colossians 3, verse 17. Paul writes there, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, you can't give thanks to God without a mediator because to do that is really to give thanks to God selfishly. But to truly give thanks is to give thanks to God through the only mediator between God and man, that is through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And really, without Christ, your supposed thanksgivings will not abound. If they're not through Christ, acknowledging him, trusting in him, they will not abound. Only the sinner in Christ can abound with thanksgiving. But third, abounding in thanksgiving means to give thanks to God through Christ in everything. Look back at Colossians 3.17 again. Notice, whatever you do in word or deed, do Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My friends, this doesn't mean every sentence you speak is a word of thanksgiving, or that you're always walking around with a big smile on your face. Notice what verse 17 says, in word and deed. Thanksgiving is then comprehensive. We are called to demonstrate thanksgiving an attitude in attitude and action. This means doing everything without complaining or arguing. This means not being easily angered. This means considering others more important than ourselves. This means that out of our thankfulness to God for Christ, you obey his commandments. This looks like giving thanks to God throughout the day. Spending our days thinking about all that we have reason to be thankful for. I remember a, a very difficult season of my life. My health was poor, and I was I was struggling with the deep depression. And it didn't change my circumstances, it didn't take away the depression. But you know what the Lord used to confront and comfort me with Christ it was Thanksgiving. Though the tears may fall, it's when we give thanks to God through Christ and everything that we remember what makes it all possible. And what is it? It's grace. My friends, you may wonder how is it possible to be thankful in the midst of the trouble, in the midst of the pain, in the hurt, and the answer is God's grace. It's the grace of God that reminds us in suffering to pray. It's the grace of God that reminds us in prayer of the benefits of our redemption. And you know what one of the several benefits is? Increase of grace. More grace to be trusting in Christ. More grace to remember his plan is perfect. More grace to bring our sorrows and our tears to him. And rest assured that he loves us, that he is working all things for our good. More grace to know that our greatest need through it all is to know Christ and to walk in him. Unbeliever, you know who you are. You can't do this if you don't have Christ. So come to Christ. Don't wait any longer to come to Christ. But believer, you can give thanks in everything, even when there is suffering, and say with Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So if you believe that Christ is supreme, if you're really resting in the fact that he is sufficient to save you, and walk in him, walk in him, continuing to trust in him, learning the faith, and abounding with thanksgiving. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the preacher's words are feeble, but we believe that the word of Christ is real. And the word of Christ is what we need. And we thank you for this word. We thank you for the reminder that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. And as Paul said, the life we now live, we live by faith in the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. So often we forget, and we complicate things in the Christian life. Yet it is very simple. Continuing to look to your son, Jesus Christ. Grant us grace, Father to continue to look to him, to behold more and more of his glory, to rest in him as the anointed one, as the sovereign one, as the saving one, and to truly learn the faith. May Sovereign Joy Reform Baptist Church be a church full of joy, understanding, and living out the truth. And may this be a church that abounds with thanksgiving, even as they sorrow in the midst of this world. We thank you that we have been given everything we need In Jesus Christ, your son, we ask that now through the ordinary means of grace, even as we continue to worship you this afternoon, you would conform us more into the image of your beloved son, our Lord and our Savior. Through him we pray. Amen.